I say unto you again, do not call up any that you cannot put down. By the which I mean, any that can in turn call up somewhat against you, whereby your powerfulest devices may not be of use. HPPodcraft.com I've heard that before. You have heard that before in our last episode covering the case of Charles Dexter Ward here at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com. I am Chris Lackey. I am Chad Pfeiffer. Ohio Chris. Oh, what? That's uh, Japanese for hello. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> why, why are you speaking to me in Japanese? That seems uh, well, kind of out of place. It is a little out of place. I wanted to give a shout. We, we have a Japanese listener, Ryo, that uh, wrote to us this last week saying that he's listening to the show as yes. he's learning English. He's a horror fan out mm-hmm. there. And uh, he posed a kind of a, a, a question to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he goes, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, trying to read things that are going to help me learn English. So do you think Lovecraft would be a really, uh, would be a good choice? <laughs> <laughs> to learn English. And I, I had to respond to him and say, well, frankly, no, no, I don't. <laughs> Unless, of course, you want to be, you know, sounding like a 17th century colonial. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it just, he gave examples of he's got a little pocket translator and he's like, for some reason, betwixt isn't in here. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was great to hear from him. And I'm so glad that uh, apparently Lovecraft, not a big uh, people don't really care for him much in Japan, yeah. or at least they don't know about him. much. Yeah, I probably wouldn't. Even though I think his stuff would really fly over there. It's probably I a translation too. issue. Yeah, I, w- I guess there's maybe there's not good translations of his work. We'll do our part to try and increase Lovecraftian awareness in the uh, the great island nation of Japan. <laughs> so uh, where were we when we last left off? What was going on? Boy, oh boy. So Charles Dexter Ward, this fella, he was in a mental institution. The guy busts out, escapes. The only person that seemed to know what was going on with him was his doctor, Dr. Willett. And mm-hmm. Dr. Willett said, well, Charles got a little funny in the head when he started doing some research into his dead relative, Kerwin, Joseph Kerwin, who he didn't even know was his relative until recently because there has been some kind of conspiracy to erase him from history. Exactly. He's been doing this research, finding out who this Kerwin guy is, and we've been into the story of Joseph Kerwin. Kerwin, who had come from Salem to Providence and was very long-lived, and um, he's basically doing some some criminal necromancy out in his uh, farm in the Patuxent Valley, and it arouses the suspicions of people in the town, and so they decide, finally, they've got to get a posse together of some learned town men to go and, and defeat whatever evil's out there. Yep. And Kerwin had sort of gotten wind of this and had been possibly preparing himself to protect against an invasion. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, doing this by perhaps preparing, if he were to be destroyed, some kind of way to come back later on down the line, and also some more practical Preparations. The Fenners, who are uh, neighboring farmers, have seen this shaft of light shooting out of a tower adjacent mm-hmm. to his farm. And and, uh, and that's where we left off. That shaft of light observed by the Fenners is what finally prompts the posse, who was kind of taking their time figuring out how to how to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say, all right, we, we have to act now because this guy's really getting into some shady stuff out yep. there. And so um, on April 12th, 1771, 100 men get together. That's a lot of guys. Yeah. And, down over uh, at Thurston's Tavern. Yeah, they get down at <laughs> Thurston's Tavern, and, and they talk about it, and they say, we, we've got to take action now. I, there was a great detail here where it says, President Manning was ready to go without the great periwig, for which he was noted. And it says, parenthetically, it's the largest in the colonies. <laughs> <laughs> That's how serious it is. 
<laughs> President Manning is not going to wear the great no. periwig that he's known. No, he's not. Although I imagine that he still shows up with a periwig. It's just a little smaller. <laughs> Captain Whipple's the leader, and Ezra Wedeen, who... Ezra is the real antagonist to Joseph Kerwin. Right, because Kerwin kind of stole his wife away from him. He was he was engaged to uh, to this woman, and Kerwin was able to kind of basically blackmail her father into getting her to marry him. And so Ezra knew that you know Kerwin was up to no good and just had it out for him the whole time. And he was the guy that's actually doing all the research and finding out what kind of naughtiness Kerwin's been up to. Exactly. So on the night of the attack, uh, Ezra goes out and waits for Kerwin to leave his home to go out to that farm in the Patuxet uh, Valley so that they know he's there and they can get together and, and go out and get him. Yep. That night, about 10.30, the doomed man had set out for his last night of unhallowed wizardry. <laughs> I love that line, That's man. a great one. It really one. gives this mythic kind of atmosphere. Everybody hears the clatter of, of Kerwin's carriage, his coach going over the muddy dock bridge, and, and Ezra notices it, so he he runs back. The folks assemble. They've got their guns and their wailing harpoons, and they set out for the farm. Now, this is one thing that kind of got my goat a little bit in the story. Uh, it's, why didn't they just get him when he was in the carriage? Oh, good point. Yeah, why did they wait for yeah, wh- him, for to, him get to to his, his base of operations? Yeah, his domicile, his, you know, his, his little fortress that he has built there. You know, like, it just seemed way more intelligent for them to just... I mean, they had 100 men. They could easily well, jump him on the, on the road. Now, they, I think, though, they were still trying to say you know there is a possibility that this guy is innocent or just crazy right so they would have to get in there and see what he's really doing but still in those catacombs get him his farm get him on the road and then go hey you know what are you doing in there and you know we're gonna go look you want to show us kind of thing and then they then they go in they don't have to worry about it. you make a very good point but i but still anyway yeah well man, you know these are these are old times and they didn't have the sophistication of military strategy that you or i have of course i mean we, think of all the movies i've seen die hard <laughs> exactly you know die hard wasn't you know they didn't have that at the time. no they didn't have that in 17 they, they had a pamphlet called die hard and there was an e at the end of the hard and, but that was about something pamphlet. totally different yeah. <laughs> an hour and a half later the raiding party arrives at the farm Kerwin had already been there for a half hour, which also, you know, at least they should have synced up their arrival time so they didn't give them some time to prepare, but they did. So they organized it into some, what, three parties? Three parties. Uh, One party, 20 men under Smith, they go and guard the shore, just making sure that he's not going to get any reinforcements. Then there's another group of 20 men, and they're under Captain Hopkins, and then they go down, uh, down the river, which goes behind the house, which is where that oaken door is. For the catacombs, which I think leads into the catacombs, which will go up to the house. And the last group of all the rest of the men, they go, you know, right to the house in the adjacent, like, uh, building and stuff that's right around right. there. They're just going to go straight in. And exactly. <laughs> President Manning's in that party, by the way. I bet you everybody's mad that they can't see over his periwig. It's going <laughs> to be so hard to attack. So there's a, they're going to set off some whistle blasts. And yes. that's how everybody's going to know to coordinate the attack. Now, Three blasts. The, the group of folks that are at the river guarding against reinforcements they'll also they can they can be their own reinforcements for the you know the raiding party if they need right. them on the mm-hmm. on the third whistle blast but the first means that we're going in the second is is for the other party to come in and so basically they want to you know they want to flank Kerwin and yeah. come in from both sides in those catacombs and, and that's how they're going to get it we only get the account from from one of them right from that's uh, right from Smith, uh, Elazar Smith, who was yeah. the drinking buddy of Ezra, who helped him put things together. And it says, uh, Elazar Smith, who accompanied the shore guarding party, records in his diary an uneventful march and a long wait on the bluff by the bay. 
broken once by what seemed to be the distant sound of the signal whistle, and again by a peculiar, muffled blend of roaring and crying, and a powder blast which seemed to come from the same direction. Later on, one man thought he caught some distant gunshots, and still later, Smith himself felt the throb of titanic and thunderous words resounding in upper air. It was just before dawn that a single, haggard messenger with wild eyes and a hideous, unknown odor about his clothing appeared and told the detachment to disperse quietly to their homes and never again think or speak of the night's doings or of him who had been Joseph Kerwin. Something about the bearing of the messenger carried a conviction which his mere words could never have conveyed, for though he was a seaman well known to many of them, there was something obscurely lost or gained in his soul which set him forevermore apart. It was the same later on, when they met other old companions who'd gone into that zone of horror. Most of them had lost or gained something imponderable and indescribable. They had seen or heard or felt something which was not for human creatures and could not forget it. From them, there was never any gossip, for to even the commonest of mortal instincts, there are terrible boundaries. So, wow. I, I actually think it's ingenious that Lovecraft didn't characterize the battle. We just get that briefest glimpse into what right, might have right. happened. Well, we get, a little and, bit, we get a little bit more. Yes, so, yeah, there's more. Well, so this is what Ward was able to sort of get out of uh, Elzar Smith's diary, right. which is one of the documents that he got later on. So that's why we're privy to it. But then he... But then, yeah, you're right. He found out some more. He found out he got Fenner's correspondence. The correspondence of the Fenners, who are the neighbors. So they also had a sort of distant viewpoint on it, but they observed some other kind of... Creatures. Yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite parts of there is they heard a sound, and then it says... Uh, it said... Um, yeah, can you can you do, can you you do try and articulate what that oh, sounds? Yeah, I'll try to... It says, uh, uh, the correspondent Luke Fenner had represented in his epistle by the characters... War, war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's what they hear. And Why did he write he that down in his life? Like he goes, you know, it it sounded like this, and he wrote it in a letter. Like what? It's yeah, it's, it's really great. it was really funny to me. I laughed out loud when I read that part. And it's funny in my notes here. I said, "Make Lackey read it." <laughs> 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 I just wanted to hear you do it. Uh, yeah, they, they hear some gunshots and some screams and rumbling and dogs barking and, and that kind of thing. And the, another weird thing they observe are these flaming things. Yeah. Uh, two flaming things. And then they felt like they came out of the sky or something? Was that what it was? Yeah, they, they actually, that's the great thing about it. They're flaming things, so they don't describe what kind of things they are. And it's yeah. also in a passive sense that they describe it. They say they appeared and hit the ground. Yeah. So it's like some kind of flaming, monstrous meteorites are dropping There's around. Something. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's then very... this, uh, this red fog goes up into the sky from the tower. Yeah. And all the cats in the Fenner household arch their backs at the same time. And then there's this overwhelming stench. Yeah, and after that, there is this incantation, incantation that he hears. And he specifically knows what it is. I mean, like, he remembers it enough to write it down. And it's, Dees mees, jesset bone, dosifi, duvma, etoniamos. Yeah, that thunders through the air yeah. at the end of the confrontation. And Charles Ward, right, he recognizes it as the ultimate horror among black magic's incantations Yeah, when he reads that. But nobody, of course, knows you know, what it is. The Fenners certainly don't know what it is, but Luke Fenner you know, was able to sort of phonetically write it down. Yeah, and it, it resonates with him. You know, it's some, I mean, it's kind of strange that, 
Well, I mean, it, it's going to play into the story later, obviously, but that exactly. he re- he remembers it. You know, he remembers it phonetically and writes it down. So yeah, this is very it's horrifying, loud voice. You know, and there's some more shrieking from different voices. There's there's smoke that comes up from Kerwin's farm, but no yeah. fire. Yeah, no fire. And in the morning, two messengers arrive at the Fenners, basically asking for a keg of rum. <laughs> I mean, they, they've had a rough night, and they have this terrible stench about them. Yeah, they really smell odd. And they t- say the Fenners, all right, everything's cool now. We took care of it. Don't ever say anything about what happened. And that seems sort of, you know, the Fenners are like, well, we're not military. I mean, we can do whatever we want. But the look on the faces of these men and the stench about their clothes really brings home that, okay, something yeah. really we shouldn't talk about this yeah exactly Exactly. let's just write it in letters to our relatives (laughs) so that that's the conclusion of the conflict out there and uh it goes on in the next section to say that eight sailors were were killed Mm -hmm. oh yeah all of the guys had this uh this nameless odor that clung to them for weeks it's very this section's very lovecraftian you know everybody's changed but luckily they are religious and able to over time through prayer and you know, he says it's lucky that they weren't more discerning or maybe more advanced of mind. You know, they had more simple beliefs, and that was therefore they were able to kind of reconcile this. Right. And of, and of course, the activities of the revolution were, you know, that, which came very shortly thereafter. That that conflict in in its import was able to also sort of help them get over this. And he specifically mentions uh, it was only a year later that Captain Whipple led the mob who burnt the revenue ship Gatsby, and uh, that was a big event in the run-up to the revolution. And right. when I was doing a little reading on that, Captain Whipple's a real guy. Oh, he is. I didn't realize that. Yeah, the, the Gatsby was um, a British ship that was sent to enforce trade laws in 72. Mm-hmm. And uh, they decided they were going to take this ship out. It was om- It's actually very similar to what these guys just did here. They got a posse together. And when this sloop, Hannah, left Newport for Providence, they sort of lured the Gatsby out into some shallows so that it got stuck. And then oh. Captain Whipple led a band of patriots to go out there, and they captured the lieutenant and everybody on the ship, pulled them off, and they burnt the ship to the ground. Wow. Yeah, so it was, I mean, it was sort of like this, and, and he was a real, you know, American A real guy, hero. wow. I didn't yeah. realize that. Wow, that's cool. Well done, researcher. Now, one thing that puzzled me in this section, it says there was, deli- well, so they, they, the people, when they go to town, they say that, that actually this was a battle with some customs officials, and they tell... Kerwin's wife and and his father-in-law that that's what happened. That right, right. The well, and oh they tell her this when they deliver Kerwin's body in a sealed right. leaden coffin of curious design. Obviously found ready on the spot when needed. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I just assume these guys would have burned him alive or decapitated him or something. But yeah. apparently they it puzzled me that they would use whatever he had laying around because it's very important that he's preserved, right? Right. Right. So they sort of played into his plan in a way. Well, I mean, we in the story we don't know that it's it's important for him to be preserved yet. Right. We, we yeah. don't. But we um, don't. But but I mean, as as guys have read the entire story, it is obviously an important fact that his body has yeah. been preserved. Oh. But maybe I don't know. Maybe he was. You know, they were fighting, and some guys came in, and then he just jumped in the coffin and shot himself in the head. And then there he goes. Well, he's in. You know, he's in a coffin. Let's yeah. Just... Well, or the raiding party didn't get to Kerwin at all. Which is suggested that perhaps what he was doing to defend himself ended up killing him, meaning that he called something up that was able to take him out. It's suggested. Yeah, maybe uh, he called something up that that brought him down. Because in uh, uh, when when Ward is going through the researches, he finds 
underlined in um, in Elzar Smith's diary that passage. Do not call up any that you cannot put down. Right. And he thinks in light of that passage, you know, Ward wondered whether any citizen of Providence killed Joseph Kerwin. You know, meaning right. that it could have been, you know, whatever he called up. Exactly. Well, so his memory is a face. They do everything they can to strike. This is when the conspiracy starts. How do we get this guy? We don't want anybody to know he existed. Mm -hmm. I thought it was neat that it says it can be compared in spirit only to the hush that lay on Oscar Wilde's name for a decade after his disgrace. Oscar Wilde had accused his lover's father of libel against him. And in the result of that trial, he was accused of unnatural acts and put in hard labor in prison for a couple of years because he was a homosexual. Um, And when that happened... His family was, they were under disgrace, you know, Oscar Wilde's wife, he was married and he had two, two children and they took the name Holland and they, they left. Wow. Yeah, it was very, I mean, it was really bad for the family. So it's a good, it's a good comparison because basically Kerwin's family had to do the same thing. They changed their name back to Tillinghast and pretended mm-hmm. that it, you know, he wasn't even around. I, I wonder about, I know that Wilde was an influence on Lovecraft and I wonder what he might've thought about. I mean, I can't know unless there's something in his letters, but I wonder what he would have thought about that. It's really tragic what happened to Oscar Wilde, I think. Oh, well, actually, Chad, Lovecraft made his uh, attitudes clear on homosexuality in a letter to uh, J. Vernon Shea back in... Back in 1933, he said, as a matter of fact, although, of course, I always knew that pederasty was a disgusting custom among the ancient nations, I never heard of homosexuality as an actual instinct till I was over 30, which beats your record. It is possible, I think, that this perversion occurs more frequently in some periods than in others, owing to obscure biological and psychological causes. Decadent ages, when psychology is unsettled, seem to favor it. Of course, in ancient times, the extent of the practice of pederastry as a custom which most simply accepted blindly without any special inclination cannot be taken as any measure of the extent of actual psychological perversion. It's actually a little more nuanced than I would have thought. Yeah. So, you know, he understands there's maybe a biological component to it. And of course, yeah. a- as a fan of the decadence and the aesthetes, a movement that Wilde was a part of and a champion of. Right. So maybe he, he would have been a little more accepting of it. That, that's interesting. We, we digress a little bit. So the, uh, yeah. uh, the farm eventually falls into decay. Kerwin's farm. Nobody goes out there and nobody really talks about it. Although there's a great quote at the end of this section it says only robust old captain whipple was heard by alert listeners to mutter once in a while to himself pox on that <laughs> but he had no business to laugh while he screamed it was as though the damned bullet <laughs> something up his sleeve for half a crown i'd burn his fucking house now we bleep <laughs> things on the show sometimes when we use curse words because we want to get a uh, clean rating from iTunes. But exactly, yes. Lovecraft actually does the bleeping himself in uh, <laughs> in the manuscript here. Exactly. He lines out the uh, what I assume are some, some pretty nasty language that Whipple uses. That concludes part two and brings us into yeah. part three. A search and an evocation. What does the evocation mean? Calling to you. Summoning something. Summoning, yeah. We're back to the future. We're back to, uh, you know, 1918. Mm-hmm. And we start to get a dig into Ward's voyage of discovery, how he comes to eventually become more like Kerwin. So 1918 is when he first learned of his descent from Kerwin. And uh, he was really open about it at first. You know, he was totally open to speculating about Kerwin. and yeah. He was talking, yeah, he talked to his family about it, and, and, you know, he'd tell his dad, he'd go, oh, I came up with, you know, I found this other interesting tidbit about Joseph Kerwin, and he would tell his dad, and his yeah. dad would go, oh, that's, that's a very cool. We get into some background on Kerwin that we weren't privy to in the previous section. He was, he was born in Salem Village, Danvers now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
people actually we get people uh, listeners of the show have been very generous sending us photos neither you or i have ever really taken the trip around these places in new england no but we get lots of great photos of the areas and people send us stuff from salem and some people are careful to point out well the actual witch trials in salem village that's that's danvers it's much calmer less uh, touristy place oh. yeah, yeah. people don't people don't know that similar to uh kerwin's name they i think wanted to stay away from the nasty history of things right he was born in Salem Village, and uh, we know that he ran away from home at 15 and, and jumped on some ships and sailed out to Europe, right? Right. Yeah, he ran away at 15, and then he, he moved on. He went, he went to England, and he stayed there for a while, and that's where, for like nine years or something. And then that's kind of how he became an Englishman, and he sort of kept that his entire life, you know, this, this way yeah. of speaking. But then he also traveled all around because he was collecting all these strange chemicals and things. Yeah, he went to France and Holland and, and a few other places. And it, nobody really knows what he did while he was out there, but when he comes back, he's got these books, and he's a stranger guy, and, and uh, you know, he's going out and burning fires in the hills at night and that sort of thing. Now, he's got a couple of friends that are referenced here, Edward Hutchinson of Salem Village and Simon Orne of Salem. Mm-hmm. He's, people see those three mixing around the common a lot and uh, they're like him they have secrets and strange lights in their house yeah, they know about uh, long dead people yeah yeah they know exactly yeah, forgotten events things like that yeah yeah and uh and we know that hutch i, I don't know why i started calling him hutch but hutch <laughs> disappeared like he's my buddy when hutch disappeared around the time of the witchcraft panic he just completely disappeared yeah he got one of it and beat it yeah. and that's when you know Kerwin moved to providence and Simon Orn, he stayed around that town, but we know that he, we know from our last episode that he left and came back and pretended to be his own son. Yeah. And was eventually taken out around the same time as Kerwin. I think they sent some letters out there and said, you got to do something about this guy. That's a whole other story. We don't know what happened to him. Yeah. There's some reference here, though, in the, the records of the witchcraft trials that I found really cool. So, uh, yeah, that there's a list of names. There's uh, Simon O, Deliverance W, Joseph C, Susan P. Who's Susan P? Yeah, these are the names of people who were supposedly went went out and conferred with the black man in the woods behind mm-hmm. Hutchinson's house. Yeah. So there's Hutchinson. It's Hutchinson's house has the woods that where they went out to talk to the black man. So he's there. Simon O and Joseph C are named. So all three of them were involved with, and the other names in this list are actually some of the the poor women who were put to death in that trial. So, you know, they were really deeply involved. I, I always think maybe the black man in the woods was Nyarlathotep. Yeah, I know. Of course, that's exactly what I was thinking. So back to uh, Ward's story. He gets some letters preserved from Orn. Mm-hmm. And he can, through these letters, he confirms that Simon and Jedediah are the same person. Right. But there's also a letter from Kerwin yeah. to Orn. To Orn, yeah, that he gets. Lovecraft includes it, in, uh, you know, as an example yeah, what was so, going on. So we actually read the letter here. We learn a couple of things. From Kerwin's perspective, this is one of the first times we really see what's going on in his mind. Yeah. And he says, you know, the people in Providence aren't as sharp as the people in Salem. I'm not as worried that they're going to uncover my stuff. Right. And I can't do the father-son trick because I've got business interests. Right. Yeah, he's stuck there, and, and if for him to leave uh, Providence and come back, it would, it would destroy his business, and he needs the money, and he's able to placate everybody else by pretending to be a good citizen. But he's not unready for hard fortune. Yeah. And there he, he brings up Yogg-Sothoth here. Yeah. He says he struck on the words that bring up Yogg-Sothoth. Is this the first mention of that deity or entity? Yeah. This is the first time This is the first time that we, we, we hear Yogg-Sothoth, I believe. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. What is Yogg-Sothoth? 
aside from another excellent podcast. <laughs> it's a great podcast. But uh, Yogg Sothoth is uh, one of the other gods. He's not a great old one. And he's from kind of time and space aren't a big deal for Yogg Sothoth. He exists in all time and all space. And people that want to transverse time and space often ask the favor of Yogg Sothoth. Wow, well, that's very interesting because that leads to uh, a clue about Charles Ward's very existence in this letter. He brings up Yogg-Sothoth, says that he was able to call him up, and then he writes this. And of ye seed of old, shall one be born who shall look back, though knowing not what he seeks. Boom. So, as you say, if Yogg-Sothoth is involved in the ability of somebody to cross time... And space. Clearly involved in this... Uh, yeah, he's clearly involved in this, this plot that Kerwin has to possibly come back if he needs. Right, exactly. He also says, there's a couple of things he says, it's no good if his remains aren't well prepped, and he's still trying to figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. He's doing the work of Borellis, he wants to keep doing that. And, and then he says at the end of the letter, he's like, anyway, if you come to my part of town, see me sometime, here's the directions. Yes, which is very important. And that's crucial. Yeah, it's very crucial, because this is how Charles Dexter Ward is going to find the house. When he looks at the directions and he sort of figures it out, where it is, he realizes, well, in all my walks, I actually know this place. I know what the house is. Mm -hmm. There's a black family that lives there now, and, yep. he, and he's familiar with them, and he's familiar with the house. He says, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, he gets very excited about this, and he decides he wants to go check out the house. At the end of that letter, by the way, there's an, it says... Uh, there's a biblical passage. Well, there, yes, there's a biblical passage. Yeah, it That's says important. Job 14, 14, which, if, if you recall from Bible study, Chad, If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. It also, when he signs off on the letter, he says, uh, I am you old and true friend and servant in Almusin Metrotron. Not Tron. Why did I say that? It's because I want to say Megatron. <laughs> Almusin Metroton. What is that? That's a good question, Chad. I don't know what that is. I wouldn't be surprised if it's lifted from some, you know, spiritualist... Because a lot of these things that Lovecraft cites are you know, right out of occult writings. Later in the story, he talks about Eliphas Levi. I, I'm probably saying it right. He was a, a mid-19th century author on occult magic. Uh, he, there's an inscription later. It's more magic gibberish. But I think a lot of the stuff comes from his writings. He was sort of... The, he wrote a, a lot about occult magic, and he's the one who actually brought us the inverted pentagram as a sign of evil. He's the one oh. that invented that, yeah. And um, Crowley obviously lifted a lot of his things, and, and I think that HPL dug into that a little bit to mm -hmm. provide some sort of backup for this. It's all stupid, in my opinion. I mean, it's ridiculous stuff. But it's it's very similar to the witch cults of Western Europe things we've talked about before, right. where he would this guy would postulate that uh, there are all of the different superstitions and and cult activities of different civilizations are actually one unified magical practice that's yeah. just under you know, and in that way it relates to a lot of other things in, in Lovecraft's work. Right. Which Lovecraft had read and he knows about and it's probably influenced his stuff to a degree. I mean obviously like looking back at Call of Cthulhu you know that all of these different cults that were all over the world were basically worshipping the same deity you know so yeah. I think that really factored into that. So what happens when he visits that house in Olney Court? Well, he goes over there, and uh, Asa is the is the guy, right? And his wife, Hannah. And they're super yeah. cordial to him, and, uh, you know, he's uh, nice to them, and everything's fine. And he goes over to the the fireplace, and there's some kind of cracked wallpaper and stuff. Well, yeah, he, he actually has some idea. He'd done some more research in New York, and, and he knows that 
this portrait of Kerwin exists and that it was done on a wall, not on a canvas. Yeah. This Cosmo Alexander portrait. Yeah, so he kind of starts to peel up above the fireplace. He starts to peel up and he sees that there's there's a painting under there. And so he yeah. gets really excited and then he talks to them. He talks to Azza and his wife and, and says, hey, I'll give you a bunch of money if you let me bring some guys in here and we'll take a look at this and, and take it apart. And they're like, okay, sure, yeah, no problem. And so he gets in these professionals to come in and, you know, basically very carefully take, you know, layer after layer of wallpaper that's been put up on this thing. Yeah, he gets an artist who's, who's a restorer of paintings to actually strip away slowly, you know, whatever's in front of the wallpaper or even more paint or whatever it is that's in front of this painting till it's finally completely restored. And that brings a, an interesting revelation. Right. Well, we, we get to see that, that uh, Joseph Kerwin looks almost identical to Charles Dexter Ward. <laughs> yep. So, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, pretty crazy. And, uh, you know, he's really excited about that. And then he pays them to have it taken off. Taken off the Yeah. The well, this, it causes some strife between his parents because he's still a little open about what he's doing. He's very excited. And he brings his parents by. Look at this. I look exactly like this guy. And his dad says, I must give this to my son as a gift. And he, he settles with the owner of the house to have that panel of the wall removed. Yeah. But, you know, mother is saying, I, something about this isn't right. I yeah. don't like it. I don't think you should have it. And But, you know, his dad is not one to listen to feminine scruples. So. Yeah. <laughs> they, they ignore mom. Yeah. Bad idea, you know. Mom's always right when it comes to this kind of thing. <laughs> well, see, here's the problem. They don't know it's that kind of thing. Right. They if don't. they knew it was that kind of thing, they would totally listen to mom. But I guess you never know. I found something a little tacky here where they remove the, the panel and uh, decide that they're going to get it back to their house and, and have it uh, placed in Charles' study uh-huh. above an electric mock fireplace. Yeah, what's up with that? I just not something I would have thought they would have had in there, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, it's so not... I guess he was trying to be more modern with it. Maybe that's yeah. what, you know, he's trying to communicate that this is today and you know that was before so oh, you're probably right you know what i mean to like, me i just thought from an aesthetic standpoint that a mock electric fireplace would not be something that lovecraft or charles dexter ward would like to have yeah it seems so uh lame <laughs> it, re- it, it reminded me of when i worked at spencer gifts when i was a teenager <laughs> we used to sell these videos of a fireplace you know for i remember didn't have those one. yeah 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 i do i always thought gosh wouldn't it be- that's so tacky, but I, I just always imagine a situation where a guy and a girl are getting kind of hot and heavy, and then he just gets up and he's like, baby, there's this video I want to put on. You know? <laughs> there's that moment of, uh, what am I about to see? Oh, thank God, it's just a firefly. <laughs> oh, but dear. there's something important that happens when they remove that panel. Behind the panel? Actually, the uh, when they remove the panel right behind where Kerwin's head was, there's a little... Oh, there's a little cubby hole. Yes, yes. A little space. And in it is the journal and notes of, of Joseph Kerwin, gentleman yeah. of Providence Plantations, late of Salem. There's also uh, uh, some papers, one of which says, to him who shall come after and how he may get beyond time in the spheres, which I assume is addressed to Ward. But there's another letter in a cipher. He's been trying to decode this ciphered letter from Hutchinson, and there seems to be a key to the cipher in here as well. Right. And then there's some letters addressed to Hutchinson and Jedediah Orne. Mm-hmm. Or their heirs. Or their heirs. And then the last document is uh, Kerwin, Joseph Kerwin, his life and travels between 1678 and 1687, where he voyaged, where he stayed, and what he learned. Uh-huh. So that's actually the uh, 
when he left home when he was 15, what happened to him when he was out there in Europe, his lost years. Yeah. When they found this stuff, this is when the alienists say they think Ward lost it. That's when, yeah, things started kind of going downhill for him. Ward's really excited when he gets the fine and he shows it to the workmen. Mm-hmm. But once he realizes what he has, he doesn't really want to talk to anybody about it. No. I mean, he kind of has to. He tells his parents, hey, I found this stuff, but he doesn't even show them what it is. The painting is installed in his study. He really gets secretive and he's staying up all night reading these books. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, there's a great... there's a. <laughs> There's a great sentence here. It says, After the workman went, he moved his work into the study and sat down before it with his eyes half on the cipher and half on the portrait, which stared back at him like a year-adding and century-recalling mirror. (laughs) (laughs) That's the worst metaphor. I mean, in my understanding of the English language and writing, when you use a metaphor, you're trying to relate something that's difficult to express to something that's a little more normal that people can understand. Right, exactly. Who has ever owned a year-adding and century-recalling mirror? <laughs> what would be the use of that product? I, I, There would be no use of that product. Unless, of course, they sold it at Spencer Gifts. Exactly. Ah, you, you brought it back around. So with that, Chris, I think it's a good, good time to pause here. Yeah. Right before Ward almost you know, goes over to the deep end into his researches and, and in more ways than one becomes very much like Kerwin. Mm-hmm. Exciting. You know, that reading today, uh, I don't know if you, you know who that is, but that's Matt Foyer, actor extraordinaire. We really enjoy his work, and we're glad to continue to have him on the show. He's great. He's a treasure. Uh, well, uh, next week we're going to jump back into this with with part three of the case of Charles Dexter Ward, and I'm excited to, right. to, to keep talking about the story because I, I love it to death. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com hppodcraft.com stared back at him like a year-adding and century-recalling mirror. And I did it really dramatic. Yeah, that was perfect. All right, give it one more time. Yeah.